Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin. And today we are celebrating Friday the 13th with an Friday the 13th week with an episode on Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan from 1989. Directed and written by Rob Hedden, starring Jensen Daggett, Kane Hodder, Scott Reeves, Peter Mark Richmond, Barbara Bingham, and Vincent Craig. In this film, a graduating class of high school seniors take a cruise with their teacher chaperones, unaware that a resurrected Jason Voorhees is on board. If you're new to the show, we're going to talk about some spoiler-free background info for the first 15 or 20 minutes here. Then after that, we'll take a fake break. I mean, totally real break. Play some transition music. And then we'll start spoiling things. So if you haven't seen it, you can duck out then and go watch the movie. Uh, We often have guests join us for our journey through the Friday the 13th franchise. And this episode is no exception. Our guest today is the prolific Jason Brenninger, who hosts Press Rewind, a Prince lyrics podcast analyzing Prince's lyrics one song at a time. He runs the site cartridgecorner.blog, where he writes about video games. And the two main reasons he's here are that he is a big fan of the Friday the 13th franchise, and he is a prominent member of our Discord community where he's known as Old Man JB. Jason, welcome to the show, sir. We're very excited to have you. Wow. (laughs) Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate that introduction. That was well said. And I guess it makes me sound like I'm a really busy man, right? (laughs) You sound like a very busy man from where I'm sitting. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the offer to be on the Horror Movie Club podcast, and I, you know, I'm happy to be here and talking about a Friday the 13th movie, which Word. is apt for me. Yeah, I mean, you're decked out in your Friday the 13th gear. We like to have Defenders on. As much as people might think we like pooping on the franchise, it's good to have another perspective on the show. So I must ask you, what was your introduction? Let's start with like your introduction to horror and how you got into it. And then secondly, how that dovetailed with your introduction to Friday the 13th. Sure. So as far as horror movies in general, I think um, with my age, and I, you know, I go by old man JB on the Discord server, which kind of implies that I'm chronologically gifted. Um, I am in my late 40s. I was born in the mid 70s. So early 80s was kind of like the time frame where I was just starting to watch horror films, usually on television, like made for TV movies or movies that had been edited for television aired. Poltergeist is the movie that I specifically remember watching and being really scared from, you know, the, the clown scene, the tree scene. There's just so many scenes in Poltergeist that could potentially uh, frighten a young child, which is, you know, what I was at the time. And so that was like my first wave of horror, the poltergeists, the gremlins, the ghostbusters, you know, kind of like the PG-13, what would be considered today PG-13 horror. Um, But then in the late 80s is when I started getting into more of the, you know, the hard R horror. Your Friday the 13th, your Nightmare on Elm Streets, your Halloweens, your Hellraisers. And I fell in love with those films, specifically the Friday the 13th franchise, mostly because I think that was the first franchise, horror movie franchise, that I that I binge watched. Um, it's it's not easy in the late 80s to binge watch the way it is now, where you can just stream everything. Uh, so what I had was a friend with two VCRs. So imagine, um, picture yourself, it's 1987, 88. 
you've got a friend with two VCRs. That opens up the the possibilities immensely. So somebody <laughs> can rent a film, um, you know, on on VHS cassette, play it in one VCR, grab a blank um, VHS tape, put it in the other VCR, and start recording them. And then you could pass those around. So you didn't have to always rent the films. And being that I was only 12, 13 at the time, I wasn't old enough to be able to rent these films myself. My parents had no interest in renting them for me. So I was using this uh, tape sharing system with my one lucky friend with two VCRs. And he kept passing me these tapes of the Friday the 13th movies. And I got addicted to them that way. And uh, it was, uh, was the perfect age, 13, like I said, 12, 13, 14. And the movies just, um, they genuinely scared me, especially the first five. I think after part six, uh, Jason Lives, the movie started to take a different tone in terms of more of a comedic tone, more specifically six and, and the one we're talking about on this episode. Um, but those first, you know, three, four, five films, they have a much darker tone to them and they were much more violent. They weren't quite as uh, mpaa um edited you know they they didn't have quite the same scrutiny so i mean they still did but if i feel like by the late 80s they were really really scrutinized the violence was really scrutinized in these films to their detriment and so i definitely remember these films fondly for that reason it was the right age the right time and they really were my introduction to what i consider hard r horror nice nice was there a feeling of kind of getting away with something with these tapes and it's like old school napster right that's awesome yeah yes exactly yes no it, it was exciting uh that i could watch all these films borrow them i could watch them multiple times you know i could keep them for two weeks three weeks no penalties <laughs> so that was nice um and they weren't mine to keep but uh, i certainly had them for as long as i needed and that was that was a nice benefit bonus uh, Jason, I've, I've got a question for you. I've never had this experience where, like, I've watched a film and had a character that had my name in it. Did that influence your decision or like of this franchise at all? Honestly, Ashwin, I don't really think so. It wasn't. I don't really have any specific memories around people calling me Jason and, uh, you know, looking at me as Jason Voorhees or making fun of it or calling me a nickname, Jason Voorhees. I think it was just kind of one of those cool coincidences but it it didn't really influence i don't think i mean maybe subconsciously it did but um consciously no i i never thought like i have to watch these films because there's a guy who kills people and he's <laughs> kind of like the star of the film and he kicks ass and his name is jason that wasn't my motivation for the films i just liked the dark tone i liked the violence and uh, I mean, obviously, I was a young teenager, so I liked a lot of the uh, the nudity that was prevalent in these films. Um, what can I say? It's, I'm basic when it comes to horror films from the 80s. <laughs> I mean, every 13-year-old boy is pretty basic in that sense. Yeah, give me some violence, give me some nudity, and uh, I don't really need a, a great story. I don't need a lot of character <laughs> development. That's not important. Yeah, sure. Um does your passion for prints overlap or have anything to do with your interest in Friday the 13th? Is it just, you know, part of your coming of age in the 80s like Friday the 13th was? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really all it is. Yeah. Uh, coming of age in the 80s, I was the right age, the right time. So 
um, just really, really briefly, because you know this isn't a Prince podcast. So with the, with with the Prince podcast, uh, I was also same age, um, preteen, early teens, when my interest in his music really kind of sparked and 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 flourished my interest in music in general. Like that was the kind of the guy for me who seemed to be able to cross over genres and do things that I never heard anybody else do. So that's where it started for me and, and it kind of continued on throughout my life. And same with um, the Friday the 13th franchise. I know there's not a lot, like a lot of these films are not great, like high quality cinema. I get that. I understand that. Um, and certainly I'm, I'm open to criticize these films when they deserve criticism. I, there's certain films in this franchise that I, think are trash and um just like i will listen to a prince song I'm like that's trash you know i mean i i'm not blind to faults from even my favorite musicians or my favorite f- horror film franchise so if, if we need to talk about some of those things in this episode i'm open to it <laughs> yeah that's, go ahead Arfin. oh it's really cool that you like i appreciated prince at like such a young age i, I feel like i just discovered him uh like probably like in the last five ten years brian are you you a big prince fan i'm not but i i really need to start becoming one i live in minnesota now and it's just a rule i think i mean i certainly enjoy his music but i wouldn't call myself a fan so i just need to dig in a little bit more same understand yeah i'll get there um how about this movie do you maybe that's a difficult question to ask because you were just a young and jason but do you have a specific memory of when you first saw this one was it you were still pretty young so i'm guessing maybe it wasn't in the theater well i mean i was 14 when this movie came out in 89 but still technically too young to see a narrated film in theaters however this movie and even like the previous one uh, part seven um didn't hold a lot of nostalgic value with me. Mm. I think it's because, as I mentioned, I had parts one through five on VHS, and those were the ones that I was heavily focused on. Part six, I had to rent myself and watch myself. I didn't have that. I didn't have access to that. And then by the time seven and eight came out, I think I was um, kind of, I wouldn't say moving on from the franchise, because that that sounds little harsh but you know i was discovering other things i was discovering new franchises like i was diving into the stephen king books and his adaptations film adaptations around that time as well and this just like part seven part eight once you start getting close to the double digits i don't know it's hard to be it's hard to stay fresh and this looked from an outsider's perspective like a jump the shark kind of film jason takes manhattan okay well we run out of ideas (laughs) Crystal Lake. Like, how many times can we put kids at Crystal Lake, Camp Crystal Lake, or you know, uh, peripherally around Crystal Lake, and continue to make a film around that? Yeah, did it seven times. Right, (laughs) did it seven times already. So they were trying to do something different, and looking at it from an outsider's perspective in real time, it looked like kind of a jump the shark moment. Like, oh my God, they're going to Manhattan. You know, then they go to Hollywood next and maybe he'll go to France and, you know, Jason, Jason takes Antarctica. I mean, it just didn't seem that it just felt kind of silly at the time to me. Yeah. 
That's fair. And I appreciated where they were coming from. Like, I think Rob Haddon was like, we've done this to death. Let's get him out of Crystal Lake. And he had two ideas. One was a boat ride and like something like Alien with, you know, people locked on the ship with Jason. And the other was Manhattan. And they combined both ideas. So I don't think it's too big of a spoiler to say a big complaint with a lot of people is that they don't spend as much time in Manhattan as the title would make one think, but I'm sure we'll get to that more in our review. That could have led to some of the negative re- reviews for it, too, because it only has 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is very low for even a low-budget 80s slasher. It's got a 27% user score. It had a budget, though. It's low-budget, but it was $5.5 million, the biggest budget of the franchise so far, and the box office was the worst of the franchise so far at $14.3 million. Um, Brian, yeah. that 11%, uh, do you know how that compares to the previous seven? Is, is this the lowest so far? I didn't do a stack up. It's, I think if it's not the lowest, it's very close. Yeah, I feel like we haven't gone that low in a while. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, a Crystal Lake prequel series is coming. Are you interested in this, Jason? I'm interested in anything Friday the 13th related. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll check out anything that they do. Yeah, that'll so, be interesting. I'll, Coming into, to Peacock. I'm into it. Yeah. First Friday the 13th media in 13 years, I guess. Yep. I, I can't 14. believe it. 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is it uh, nothing's come out in the last, uh, since 2009? Is it like a rights thing? Like they haven't, uh, it's been kind of like tossed between studios or something? Yes, there's a big extended legal battle that I won't get into too much of the details on because it's kind of complicated and I'm, I'll probably botch something. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but I, Victor I can't Miller. I correct you because I, I don't really care that much. Have, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the details, yeah. it's like it doesn't matter until there's a movie. Yeah, I was just surprised it's been that long. It's crazy. Yeah, Victor Miller, the writer, and Sean Cunningham, the director of the first movie, are arguing over who has the rights to what. Mm. Um, and I think something was settled that the adult Jason rights are separate, so that's how they're doing a prequel to the movie because adult Jason has nothing to do with that first movie. So, oh, so the this show is going to be about kid Jason. It's going to be a prequel to the events of Friday the Thirteenth from 1980. So, yeah, presumably kid Jason, but we'll see. Wow. Yeah, and definitely um, Mrs. Voorhees too. I would think. I would I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. Right. Cool. Um I won't go too deep into the background info on this movie since we had a nice discussion up front already. Ashwin, is there anything you want to get in before I hit the Ohio connection and, and keep on rolling? Um just uh this is Kane Hodder, uh his second Friday the thirteenth. And I, I always thought he was is he like one of the best Jasons or the most well known actors uh to play Jason? From my perspective, he's one of the fan favorites. Jason, is that your interpretation as well? Well, yeah, it's mo- largely because he's one of the few that have done it. He's Nobody has done it more than him. So he's played Jason more than any other actor. So mm-hmm. like, it seems like with every movie, they kept changing the actor who played Jason until they came to Kane. And so he did it for four. And he's very physically imposing. And not that other Jasons were not physically imposing. Certainly... Jason from part three is very physically imposing. Part four is very physically imposing and even six. But um, 
yeah, Kane is a fan favorite. He does a lot of conventions, you know, and he right. really embraces he really embraces his time playing Jason. So he yeah. just kind of becomes synonymous, even though he didn't join the franchise until the seventh film. Yeah, yeah. I feel like for how well his name is done, I was surprised that this is only a second in the series. But yeah, I guess you're right. He goes on and does the rest of them, right? Um, yeah, he has seven, eight, Jason goes to hell, and then Jason X. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, Freddy but he, versus. But he didn't Jason. do Freddy versus Jason though. Oh, that okay, was the okay. stunt coordinator for this movie, actually, who oh, who cool. went on to do that. Um, yeah, I think we both comment, commented Ashvin when we reviewed Part Seven that Kane Hodder was an improvement and a very foreboding presence in that movie. So for sure, yeah, stay out. I can get it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. We connect every movie we watch to our home state of our Ohio, and surprise everybody, Jason, our guest, is currently in Cleveland, Ohio, where he lives as we're recording this. Um, so our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, connects every movie to our home state for us. And Alex says, Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, is a slasher film sequel set several year- years after The New Blood. The film follows Jason as he stalks a group of high school graduates on a ship en route to New York City. The song The Darkest Side of the Night, performed by Metropolis, plays over the opening and ending credits to the film. Metropolis was a Canadian rock band founded by renowned composer, singer, and songwriter Stan Meisner. Meisner's career includes hits in Canada and internationally, having been a composer and songwriter for over 35 years, and has written and composed music for many international acts, artists, and TV series. Among these artists was Ben Orr, founding member of new wave pop group The Cars. Ben Orr was born and raised in Lakewood, Ohio. Nice. That's awesome. Did I know that? Jason, were you a fan of Metropolis or familiar with their music when this opening song started the film no no but i love the cars <laughs> yeah yeah right sam <laughs> but no i don't know metropolis <laughs> metropolis is a very specific 80s sound okay. at least this song is <laughs> so, not we didn't really expect uh, in in this franchise no no yeah it's a fun one okay well uh let's start reviewing the movie we're gonna walk through the plot and spoil everything uh, but do you guys mind holding on a quick second? Before we get started, my wife and I uh, were planning a trip to New York City this summer, and she just wants to confirm all the details with me before she books. Sounds good. All right, I'll be right back. Okay, guys, I'm back. We're all set. We're taking an overnight cruise there, which should give us about 29 solid minutes of time in the city itself, which will be perfect. <laughs> uh, were you guys, uh, did you have to like Google map this at all to figure out like geographically how this would work? Uh, taking this boat from Crystal Lake, like that's, that's not possible, right? Uh, we definitely <laughs> didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> did you try to figure that out i was going to today because I, I figure like there's some kind of river system in uh, new york that puts you from uh wherever crystal lake is is crystal lake a real lake i think there are crystal lakes but i think it's a fictional jason you're the fan you've been to some of the yeah. filming sites yeah yeah it's fictional uh, yes there are crystal lakes <laughs> throughout the united states <laughs> but the 
there's no specific crystal lake in new jersey where i believe this is supposed to take place mm-hmm. and that's where the first film was made and um i mean i guess it never does it ever say it takes place in new jersey i kind of feel like it does but i might be wrong yeah either way it does imply that the the connect the what is are they on like the hudson river or something like that that is connected to crystal lake somehow right see you guys don't believe that I, I mean, what you have to kind of assume is that this fictional Crystal Lake is close to the coast. Like, if it's in New Jersey, it's got to be close to the Atlantic Ocean. And okay. they 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 jumped on this boat in the Atlantic Ocean to take this cruise up 50 miles, 60 miles or whatever <laughs> along the coast up through past Staten Island into manhattan because like manhattan's like in the center you got staten island you got long island you've got new jersey over here you have to pass a a bunch of um new york city just to get to manhattan so yeah logically it makes zero wouldn't work okay all right thanks (laughs) we got that sorted out (laughs) let's look at a map earlier today forgot (laughs) all right well the film begins with a montage of new york city that really lays on thick just how gritty the city is we're hearing the darkest side of the night by metropolis there's a voiceover saying things like it's like this we live in claustrophobia a land of steel and concrete there is no escape nor do we want it i love this town so very new york there's a montage that includes things like a mugging where the criminals then throw the wallet into a barrel of toxic green water with a rat in it people doing drugs in alleys I feel like personally, I'm wondering if we're all in the same spot. As a kid at this point in time, even though I wasn't seeing this movie, I was playing, seeing plenty of New York represented on screen in the late 80s and early 90s. My perception was that New York City was this horrible, crime-ridden place that you would never want to go to. Did you guys have a similar perception when you were young? Yeah, and it was it was all these movies like in the late '80s, early '90s, and like similar scenes of people like standing around, trash cans on fire, uh, crime, and all this stuff. I, I was wondering, what, what do you guys think uh, was driving like that image of New York back then? What were crime rates like that high back then compared to now, uh, or was this like a war on from Hollywood against the East Coast? I think it might be a little bit of both. I mean, I think that there's certainly some truth. I mean, I didn't live there, obviously, but. Um, all by all accounts, New York City in the seventies and eighties was gritty. That really gritty? gritty. I mean, maybe not as gritty as the opening montage from <laughs> Jason Takes Manhattan gritty, but <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty gritty, pretty gritty. Damn, it was like modern day Cleveland, or maybe <laughs> Cleveland in like the nineties, two thousands. Yeah, yeah, we'll go yeah. back in a few, couple decades. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. Cleveland's getting cleaned up. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think there was some truth to New York was kind of bad, but it was done no favors in the media, that's for sure. Do you guys uh, notice this theme, like, yeah, in the late 80s, 90s, you had, like, Child play, Child's Play, this movie, um, oh, I think Gremlins, like, yeah, you had a lot of movies, Home Alone too, a lot of them in New York, uh, but now these days, uh, horror films are more about the suburbs and, like, uh, houses that are haunted that aren't in cities. Like, you really see a scary movie these days that takes place in a city. So what what's that dynamic that switched in like the last 20, 30 years that took movies from like these cities into uh, quieter neighborhoods? Good question. I have no idea. I mean, I know we moved into the suburbs in like the 80s, but that was kind of the same time. That was all kind of 
part of a move away from like haunted mansions out in some you know random area or some texas chainsaw type house in rural areas and moving it into places where people really lived who are seeing the movie i yeah. think those go hand in hand suburbs and urban but mm. it's just like yeah po- where the population is going yeah yeah all right makes sense um okay so let's see we transition from new york city to a young couple on a boat near camp crystal lake they're trying to have a romantic evening but when they drop anchor the anchor cuts into some electrical wiring at the bottom of the lake this creates a surge of electricity that shocks jason's dead body at the bottom of the lake and brings him back to life and jason not to put you on the spot but is this the second time in the franchise that he's been brought back by electricity yes so yeah. Jason Jason loves electricity apparently like he's like Frankenstein he just <laughs> yeah thrives off off surges of electricity through his body in, in ways that most people cannot you know survive yeah he definitely has some Frankenstein in him like that <laughs> yeah <clears throat> okay so he does away with this couple without too much suspense um, but at least we get some misdirection with a fake out scene where the boyfriend is pretending to be Jason um what are your thoughts, Jason, picking up this movie again, seeing this opening? Are you a fan of it? So-so? How does this compare to your other Friday the 13th experiences for, as far as opening acts go? Well, the Friday the 13th franchise has kind of a a history of repeating itself in opening scenes. We tend to like look back. Like, hey, uh, previously on Friday the 13th Part 1, previously on Friday the 13th Part 2. Um, this one doesn't really do that, which is nice. But that opening scene with the couple on the boat is really intended to kind of do that without actually taking just footage from the previous film and saying, this is what happened. So it serves the same purpose, and it, it's par for the course for the series. So you kind of expect there needs to be that little opening scene where they catch everybody up just in case you didn't see parts one through seven, or maybe you skipped seven and hadn't seen a movie since four or five, you know, you could still, so what, what's happened in the last couple of movies? I missed them. Oh, okay. He killed people and he was killed himself. Now he's buried at the bottom of this lake. I'm ready to go. So yeah, that's what it means for me. It's good, but it's, it's, you know, not, nothing unexpected. That is a cool thing to point out because normally they do, or maybe not normally, but quite often, they really spell it out. We see a decent amount of footage from prior movies. And this was a fairly efficient way to be like, here's who Jason is. Here's what's happened in some of the past movies. Here's where we are now, while still incorporating it into this movie and not going so heavy on like, here's what we're doing, everybody. Watch watch the footage from the old movies. Mm-hmm. uh ashwin what did you think of this first act here uh yeah same great great kind of like a background setting don't they show a flashback of like a young kid jason drowning in this which i i feel like that was new footage i hadn't seen unless was that pulled from another movie no. that was new okay new footage so, yeah cool cool they they uh went back to the, the the original story um uh yeah surprised how quick they brought on the nudity though uh and then um, I thought the kills were kind of uh, edited poorly in terms of like the suspense, how long the shots lingered, and the lack of gore. Uh, what, what did you guys think? 
the kills were pretty clean and, and not much suspense, especially when the woman hides. Jason just finds her right away, and and that's that. <laughs> yeah, she says yeah, like no a hundred times. <laughs> yeah. And none of the none of the character, well, very few of the characters in this film put up much of a fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jason, I looked for some. I've found unedited kills on YouTube before. For some of the prior movies we've discussed, there are lengthy kill sequences that are then reduced to something very minimal. From what I could tell, this movie has a couple that were longer, but it's what you see is mostly what was filmed. There's not that much that's toned down, right? Or am I misunderstanding? No, I mean, I think you're. I think you're right. So, the I have the complete collection of these films on Blu-ray, of course, and this this disc actually has some footage from yeah, you know, from the cutting room floor, and it's pretty minimal. Like what they cut is really not. First of all, it's not graphic, and I don't. You know, the MPAA had their heads up their asses for this right. at this time to even ask them to cut what they cut. Um, but what they filmed wasn't very graphic to begin with. And then they had to even cut this not very graphic scene down even further. So, so yes, there is some stuff that was cut, but it isn't that graphic. It isn't that gory at all what they ended up cutting. So it's, it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have really significantly improved the kills. Yeah, I agree from what I saw. Um, okay. Yeah. So now that this couple has been off, we're interest, introduced to the main characters of the film as some high school graduates are boarding a teacher chaperone cruise to New York City. We meet Rennie and her teacher, who's also a bit of a mother figure named Mrs. Van Dusen. We also meet a teacher named Mr. McCullough. We learn that he is not happy at all that Rennie is getting on this ship. He's worried about some sort of fear or condition of hers that is withheld from the audience for the time being. But we eventually learn later in the movie that Rennie is terrified of the water. We also learn that Mr. McCullough is Rennie's uncle and legal guardian. He seems to care about her, even though he generally seems like an asshole. We meet another student named Sean, who becomes a love interest for Rennie. And before the crew sets off, the deckhand on board sees the blood-spattered boat of the two slaughtered teens wash ashore. And he says to one of the high school students, this voyage is doomed. It's odd that he wouldn't tell an adult in clear and concise language <laughs> what exactly he saw. <laughs> nice being all cryptic about it. Jason, can you refresh my memory on the guy's name? Was it like Crazy Bob or something? The Harbinger of Doom from the first two movies? Crazy Ralph. Crazy Ralph, there we go. <laughs> yeah, that's what this guy is, obviously. Yes, very clearly just a, a Crazy Ralph present. See, he serves, serves a bit of a purpose later in the film. Um, kind of a red herring. Uh, so <clears throat> we learn that he is correct. The voyage is doomed. When we see Jason kill his first victim on board, when he bludgeons a rock and roll chick type character with her own guitar, were either of you sad to see this character go so fast? It seems like she kind of could have been a cool and interesting character to develop. I think, yeah, I was excited to see where her storyline was going to go. That was cut too short for me. What about you, Jason? Uh, agreed. I mean, rest the rest of the characters on this, with the exception of maybe Julius, the the boxer, the pretty one note, <laughs> not very interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it would have been nice to see her character develop. Maybe she wasn't a very good actress, and they needed to get rid of her. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, she really had some character and charm, and it seemed like maybe there was even a love relationship that could have been blooming with her and the videographer type guy, but uh, that was not her fate. She was killed very quickly and not very violently or interestingly, just smashed with her own guitar, and we barely see any of it, and that's that's that. The the setting where she gets killed, uh, that like undercarriage of a boat. I've, I haven't been on a lot of like big ships or anything, but it, it looked like something you'd see on like that Titanic, like this huge like undercarriage or whatever, where it's just like stairs and stuff. Like, was that right for the size of boat? It seems a little elaborate for for this size of boat, but who knows? I love that you're calling it the undercarriage. <laughs> like it's, that, it's the boat's you, testicles or something. What do you call that part of the boat where they're just like a bunch of stairs and uh, people walking up and down? The testicular area. Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, I was surprised <laughs> this boat had that. Yeah, what would you call it? It's like a boiler room type situation. You know, it's all like metal grating steps and a service area type stuff. Utilities. Okay. Talking like a steam engine here? Yeah, right. Steam engine. Okay. okay. Various yeah, fuel nice. settings, sure. testicles. Uh, right. Yeah, so then Jason continues his killing spree. He leaves the undercarriage area. Uh, he shoves some charcoal through a guy's chest in the sauna, which was kind of notable, but again, we didn't get to see very much. And he kills the evil prom queen character in an extended sequence. After she gets out of the shower, his arm bursts through her bathroom door, ripping her robe off and shoving her into a mirror. He uses a shard of the mirror glass to stab her. Again, we don't see crazy amount of gore here, but this feels like the most violent and gritty kill of the film, largely due to the fact just that he like rips her robe off first. We don't see the shard penetrate her skin or anything, but we see the rise and fall of the weapon. Um... Jason, this may be a big question to put you on the spot in, but in the past on the show, Ashwin and I have talked about, you know, the phallic theory of slashers. And is it all just a big Freudian thing that the knife is a penis, you know, penetrating these young women? Do you think that there's something to that? Is it poppycock? Well, I mean, it's an interesting theory. Like, it's an interesting topic of conversation, thought experiment, whatever you want to call it. And I enjoy discussing it um, and hearing others discuss it, but I honestly don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think um, considering the most vast majority of these films are, are made, written and, and filmed and directed by men, yes, not all of the victims are women. Um, we, we know that men get stabbed too. I mean, Halloween, Bob gets you know, lifted up and stabbed right in the gut by Michael. So it certainly isn't just women, even if um, the kind of perception is that these slashers are targeted towards murdering co-eds, buxom co-eds. And in this, yes, in this specific scene, a woman gets naked. She She is stripped of her clothing before she's murdered. So it certainly lends that type of, uh, or, you know, leads the discussion in that direction. Like, Okay, so very few people are stabbed in this film. Like, if you think of the deaths, there's not a lot of stabbings. There's some chokings, there's some bashings in the head, there's, you know, I, I don't know if we can spoil decapitation feel later free, on. Yeah, feel free, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, this this character, the, the evil prom queen, she gets stabbed while she's nude. So, yeah, 
Yeah, I think that there's there's some validity to that discussion and validity to how it's portrayed, especially in this film when this is like the only film or only um, scene where somebody is stabbed. Right. Maybe yeah. not literally the only one, but it's one of the few that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I go back and forth on whether I subscribe to that or not. I believe Ashvin maybe does more than I do, but I couldn't help but think of it in this probably for that reason it's just that there isn't actually much stabbing here and all of a sudden you have a naked woman and and she's the one getting stabbed pretty big coincidence yeah hey uh tone wise uh, are you guys getting like the comedy because i yeah i understand like this one is supposed to lean more comedic uh are you guys feeling that at this point in the film or does that come later i didn't feel much humor but jason what do you think not until later. It doesn't really okay. kind of start. The, the movie doesn't put its tongue in its cheek until until they get to Manhattan, I don't think. Otherwise, sure. it's a pretty straightforward um, slasher. You know, uh, he's stalking around the boat. Um, and there's not a lot of humor involved. It's, it's very melodramatic with the scenes with uh, Rennie and, um, you know, her her trauma that is still only being alluded to and not explicitly um, kind of explained and it's you know the tone is still very serious until they get to Manhattan then it gets much lighter right okay uh, Jason I'm going to ask you another slasher question just because I feel like this incorporates into the evil prom queen's death too she pushed Rennie into the water earlier knowing Rennie couldn't swim and I didn't know we've also talked about the kind of slasher morality or slasher code almost anybody who has sex and or does drugs or does something mean or awful is bound to die do you subscribe to that do you think it's a fallacy any thoughts on that i think by 1989 there was certainly some truth to it (laughs) yeah (laughs) right the formula had been um well trodden at that point well written and 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 communicated throughout the slash i mean slashers by 1989 were on the outs so and it's largely because of, I think, some of these, uh, some of these tropes that were almost prevalent to the point where they became predictable. So yes, this evil prom queen, she's she's not a good person. Very clearly, she tries to seduce her teacher and then blackmails him uh, for so she doesn't have to do her final project, her senior class project. And she she's literally doing drugs. So like they, there's a scene where she's snorting coke. So, I mean, she's she's got the trifecta of, of um, you know, vices that she has to atone for. And and she does and quite violently. So, yeah, by by 89, the, the tropes were all there and present for us to to pick apart and, and predict. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Ashwin, do you agree? Do you subscribe to that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think they definitely played that up. Uh, I think to everything Jason mentioned with, with her. She was uh, an embodiment of all of that, which I don't know. I, I think they could have spread that out over a few more characters than have one character go all in on like all those things. But it also made her incredible that she she was like so badass. <laughs> she did not uh, give a fuck. Exactly. <laughs> OK, so let's see where where are we at here with Jason and, and his goings on. So things come to a head when Jason kills the ship's captain and the first mate. Rennie and Sean eventually stumble upon their dead bodies and make an announcement, at which point all the main characters reconvene. 
McCullough still doesn't believe that Jason is on the ship, but a character named Julius stands up to McCullough and says he's leading a search party for Jason, no matter what McCullough says. Uh, One of the members of this search party gets got by Jason, and Jason tosses him on some electrical wiring that starts a fire. (laughs) Correct me if I didn't see this correctly, but I'm pretty sure it's then Jason who pulls the fire alarm once the fire starts. Yeah, pretty sure that's he. He does the right thing here. Yeah, (laughs) he's like, I'm not a monster. (laughs) He's really savvy. Like uh, in an earlier scene, he's like, uh, uh, take pulling the wires from like a radio and stuff. Like he kind of knows his way around the boat and like the electronic systems. Uh, Impressive, and and like how a fire system works. Yeah, knows his way around the undercarriage. Yeah, say that. Yeah, exactly. That's any slasher villain, though. Michael Myers is cutting phone lines, and they, they all seem to know how, how houses work. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> You've learned by this point. And boats now, too. <laughs> hey, uh, did you hit on the, the visions yet that, that um, the one character is having? Um, I haven't mentioned that. Why don't you go ahead and explain that? Uh, what, what is her name? It's with an M, right? Rennie. Rennie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and zero M's. <laughs> exactly. You were close. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she's been having these visions of, like, a young child in the water, like, reaching out. And my interpretation of this is that she has, like, some kind of special power, like, uh, the character in, I think, the previous movie had a special power, like, uh, she could, like, move things with her mind, right? So I, th- I thought that's what they were going with uh, Rennie here and her ability to kind of sense that Jason is on the boat and he has, like, this ghost story behind him or like this trauma that, that like it was his trauma that she was seeing did you guys get that vibe at all i briefly wondered if they were going somewhere supernatural when she first started the, having the flashbacks but after a while i thought they wouldn't go that route simply because of you know we watched the last one jason i know you'd seen it before but do you remember having any expectations around what was going on there i i just was trying to figure out why she had these visions of of a drowning boy Right. I mean, I think it's it's not well explained, but I think it's they try to explain it towards the end of the film. Yeah, and you have to make some leaps and uh, conclusions, um, but I think it's there. You just have to connect the dots. It's not obvious. It's not overt. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, we aren't too far from learning why that's happening. Um, but with the fire alarm going off and the ship taking on water, our main characters realize they'd better leave the ship. They board a lifeboat, and after much Shit-talking for Mr. McCullough, Sean eventually navigates the lifeboat to NYC, where they are relieved to be alive. Now, I know, Jason, you had expectations set. You know what happens in this movie. But, Ashwin, this was your first time. Maybe you didn't know that very little time was spent on Manhattan. So how are you feeling at this point? Are you pissed that we just saw them spend this much time on a boat? Or are you fine with it? You know, I, I've always been kind of excited about this movie because of the title. Uh, and I think someone had told me uh, in one of our earlier episodes that, like, yeah, very little of it is shot in Manhattan. So I, I wasn't expecting any Manhattan. So I was, I was pretty happy to see them finally come here and that, oh, cool, we are going to get some footage in this city. So I was I was, I was excited to, to see that. And, I was yeah, it got me pumped at this point after, like, kind of a snooze. Right. I actually also had flipped expectations. I expected like five minutes in Manhattan from what people said, but there's still <laughs> about 30 minutes left in the movie. At this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all the theatrical trailers and, and TV spots for this film 
we're really emphasizing the Manhattan aspect. As you could imagine, it's called Jason Takes Manhattan. And what's going to get butts and seats seeing Jason wreak havoc in, a, in the largest city in the country? You know, iconic uh, uh, Times Square and and just see him, you know, do his thing in a, in a city with, you know, 10, 20 million people. So I think your guys' lowered expectations is interesting um, coming from, you know, a standpoint 30 plus years later when most people in 89. And this kind of also speaks to its poor performance at the box office, maybe through word of mouth, maybe through reviews. When uh, Jason takes Manhattan, you kind of get the assumption there's there's an expectation that a vast majority of this film takes place in New York City. And when it didn't, that disappointed a lot of people. So now you flip forward like, hey, everybody's talking about how this movie barely takes place in Manhattan. So, hey, we got a solid 30 minutes. We're good. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, cool. (laughs) Great. And we didn't mention it at the top of the episode, but a good chunk of the reason is that they just didn't have the budget to do as much shooting in Manhattan as they wanted to. So, Do you guys think the full title was Jason Takes a Boat to Manhattan? And they just cut that that part out there and did Jason Takes Manhattan? Yeah, it just didn't didn't really have that zing to it. Yeah, yeah, it's not as catchy. Oh, hey, uh, one thing that was happening on the boat that we see again in New York, uh, he's teleporting suddenly. Is that something we've seen him do? Oh. On- <laughs> before i think this is the first time i've noticed that he can do that but did i just miss that in the earlier ones it's a I new didn't... skill he developed <laughs> yeah. he leveled he, he leveled like, up between the uh, movies he did didn't he yeah <laughs> he had a lot of time at the bottom of that lake to think <laughs> all right that's he solved fine. teleporting down there <laughs> nice i actually didn't notice that on the boat but there's a pretty egregious moment of it in a little while that i'll bring up all right um, so once they get on Manhattan, on Manhattan, they are relieved, but immediately two criminals take Rennie away at gunpoint. Uh, at this point, Mr. McCullough says, I think we'll be more productive if we split up, which I know is a common groan inducing trope in horror movies, but it has never made less sense to me than it did at that moment. <laughs> Just, where? <laughs> what? Um it gets gritty here. Rennie is injected with drugs and almost raped before Jason stumbles upon the scene and stabs the perpetrator with a used drug needle. This dude's buddy then shoots Jason repeatedly to no avail, and Rennie is able to escape during the scuffle. To me, as dark as this is, it's probably one of the cooler and most tense moments in the movie. Did you guys enjoy this, or what did you think? It was just cool to be like, okay, we're off the boat, and then right into this. Jason thoughts. Well, first of all, um, this is like one of the first few scenes where Jason's looked at as a hero. Right, that's <laughs> so, true. So he's, he's, I mean, he doesn't intentionally save Rennie, but by taking out the the drug, you know, drug dealers and, and addicts and rapists, um, he, in essence, saves Rennie from a horrible fate, even though I'm sure she would have been next on his, you know, kill list if, if she stuck around, but... Yeah, so he's kind of like, yay, Jason, took out the the rapists. <laughs> Good job. So he's right. like, kind of looked at as a hero in this moment, for this one moment. Well, and that's a great point. So many fans, too, are rooting for Jason anyway. So when he can take out two, two prospective rapists and, you know, just all-around scuzzy dudes, that's a, a plus. Ashwin, did you enjoy this scene? For what, I mean, enjoy is a strong word for a pretty scene <laughs> like this. 
Yeah, it was dark, man. Uh, really dark introduction to New York. And uh, yeah, definitely hitting on that whole thing we talked about over the grittiness of the city. Yeah, these two criminals. Well, what kind of drugs were those? Uh, I, I couldn't tell what that was. That was like some secret of the use shit. That, yeah, uh, it was green was ones, green drugs. <laughs> the green ones, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but dark and yeah, really cool. I, I loved how uh, while he's like killing one of the dudes, like she's trying to escape from out from under one of the other ones. Uh, so it kind of gives that suspense, like she's got to get out of there before he finishes killing her. But Jason, he said something interesting about like him being a hero here. Have we, I, I mean, we'll talk about this when we get to the end, but I, I do wonder if he's ever really going after Rennie or if he recognizes her from, oh, I, I guess they'll, 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 we'll, we'll get to that point. You can just go ahead and say it. Oh, well, it is revealed later that Rennie had encountered Jason when she was young under the water, and those are the visions that she had been seeing. Um, is there a chance that this whole time he was just trying to reconnect with her? Because I, I don't know if he's ever, like, really attacking her or trying <laughs> to kill her. Is she, I mean, he's definitely following her and killing everyone else, but does he has he, like, attacked her yet? I mean, solid, solid uh, observation, Ashman. I think that there's certainly a chance that he just he just wants to be friends with her. <laughs> yeah, remember no, me? No, I never got your name. It had an yeah, M exactly. in it, right? <laughs> yeah, something with an M. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Just keep keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. He might just want to network. Um. Yeah. So let's see. After Jason kills Rennie's attackers, he goes and finds Julius. Julius is stranded on a rooftop with Jason, and being a great boxer, he uses what he's got available to him, which is only his fists at this point, and he punches Jason like 50 times, causing little to no damage, and Jason eventually just punches his head off. I'm not sure if this scene could have been made any less interesting. There's no music, nothing dynamic about it. We just watch Julius take like 50 swings, and it goes on for two solid minutes. To me... I interpreted that as boring, but Jason, did you see any like heartbreaking desperation there? Do you think maybe that was what they were going for? I mean, I like the scene personally. Yeah. I like the scene and it's, yeah, it does go on a while, but I think, you know, if, if they, if it only took like 30 seconds, you would not get the impression that Julius would be tired and worn out and basically, you know, giving up his fight with this guy. Plus he has to emphasize that, Jason cannot be harmed through just like your fists. Like he's subhuman. And so um, I do like this scene because it is something we haven't seen before. Jason really be taking on being taken on um, mano y mano, so to speak in that manner. Usually it's like somebody's just trying to escape and run away from him and maybe like dumping a bookcase on him or, you know, hitting him over the head with something and then running away like this is supposed to be one-on-one -on -one battle and they they you know they build it up cuz you know they have a scene earlier in the film where Julius is boxing uh, I don't I don't know too many high schools that have a boxing team but apparently this little school has one and Julius is the best boxer on the on the team um and so they 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 you know lead up to it very well I think it's it's the culmination of that and it's the climax of of this one-on-one -on -one battle and I like it because it's something we haven't seen before in a Friday the 13th film, even if it does go on a little longer than it needs to. And then it's it's actually, for me, it's a laugh out loud moment. Like, I, I laugh out loud whenever he punches Julius's head off because it's just so, <laughs> yeah, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> I, I agree. Good I, defense I of the scene. 
Yeah, I thought it was like one of the standout scenes from the movie because all, all the other kills have been so unremarkable or like really quick. And here's one that's like taking its time and the silence uh, just like lets you focus on uh, how like tired Julius is getting punching this dude. Uh, so th- this like felt like the most real uh, struggle that we've seen in this film. And I, I thought it was powerful. And then, yeah, the comedic ending was was crazy. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't tell if, you, if it was actually working, but it, Jason was totally just toying with him, right? Like that. That those punches weren't having any effect on him, were they? Yeah. No. Okay. No. Yeah, I mean, he was wearing a mask too. So yeah, it's but but yeah, yeah, I thought there was like a lot of uh, humanity in this in this fight. Uh, but Brian, you weren't into it. Yeah, I guess I'm the only asshole then. It's official. <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad I brought it up because you two seem to really like this scene. So that's good. I really like Julius. I think he's a cool character. I think he's noteworthy too. In 1989, he's a black man who we've seen two of the woman characters like you know have he's a love interest essentially for them or at least they they would like him to be he takes on a leadership role among the dudes and everything so he's a cool character to have in this movie and it's a shame that his head goes away (laughs) i'm just glad he made it to manhattan at least yeah Yeah, he did and he he put up more of a fight like jason was mentioning earlier nobody puts up a fight in this movie he put up way more of a fight than anybody else right the rest of the gang eventually finds a police officer, but when they enter the patrol car, they are shocked to find our our man Julius's head in it. He pulls the cop, Jason pulls the cop off screen to kill him, and so Rennie gets behind the wheel. When she does, Jason now magically appears 50 feet in front of the car, staring it down, despite just moments ago having been right next to the driver's side door. So here's some of that teleportation you were talking about, Ashvin. Rennie floors it, and she's kind of tripping on whatever green drug she was giving as well. She floors it, drives into Jason. Jason. Um, she runs into him and then drives into a vision of Jason as a younger boy, if I'm remembering correctly, and then crashes the car into a wall. They all get out except for poor Mrs. Van Dusen, who is in the car still when it explodes. Uh, at this point, having just lost someone very important to her, it is now that Rennie has the vision of her past. She's a young girl, and her uncle, Mr. McCullough, takes her out onto Crystal Lake. He tells her she'll have to learn to swim or Jason will pull her under, and he pushes her out of their canoe. Jason, of course, a young Jason, does pull her under, and she almost drowns before McCullough can eventually save her. Uh, and when she comes back out of the flashback, she's pretty pissed, and her and Sean desert mr mccullough but not before sean just like pushes him into some trash uh that was a pretty i was down with that reveal just because we've been building mccullough up as an asshole so it was almost relieving to be like okay we've got a full character reveal and he is truly an asshole yeah they tied that out pretty interestingly uh i i didn't see that coming at all that was like uh i yeah i didn't realize that she'd like bury this this trauma in here That, that that took me by surprise yeah, it was kind of fun. What, are you a fan of that, Jason? It kind of fleshes out Rennie a little bit more, too. I mean, it explains, <laughs> explains all the flashbacks of why she's this little yeah. boy. Um, yeah. The thing that, I don't know, maybe, Brian, you were going to get into it, but like Jason's appearance throughout the film as a young boy continually changes. Like He starts out looking pretty normal. Like In her vision, she, he looks fairly normal like a normal boy. Then he starts getting a little more deformed and a little more deformed. Like he has his one left eye that's a little wonky. Um, and then until towards the end, then he's like this full-formed, full-fledged um, 
deformed child like he is in the first film when he leaps out of the water and and grabs uh, Alice in the canoe. Spoiler, sorry. Um, so I, I don't know if that was, I assume that was intentional. Like, like her visions kept revealing themselves to her throughout the film to become more like how they actually were. Because I think like the boy that tries to pull her under, the actual Jason boy was uh, much more deformed than her initial visions implied. Yeah, I couldn't tell if he was evolving or not. Um, that's a good thing to bring up. And then also just canonically, refresh our memory, is Jason like a deformed boy or a boy with facial differences, like real world life Jason before his drowning? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that, I don't that's, know that's if implied, I forgot that. Or just... Yeah, it's kind of implied through the first film. And just how he looks when he leaps out of the water at the end of the first. Like, Mrs. Voorhees, of course, being his mother, isn't going to say explicitly why he wasn't very well liked and was teased mm-hmm. and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But then when he leaps out of the water, you're like, oh, because, you know, he, he was different. And, um, you know, kids can be cruel. And so he, he was an outcast and also couldn't swim. Uh, and so then... In this film, then, when I, I originally, I, it'd been a while since I've seen it. And so when I started watching it again in preparation for this show, I'm like, they totally missed this. Like, Jason looks normal. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> he, he He's not supposed to look normal. And then they keep showing in the flashbacks, he gets progressively more deformed, facially different. And um, until they until they get to the end of the film and then they kind of reveal that, okay, this is this is how Jason looked in reality. And you think that's like a reflection on her memory becoming clearer and clearer of like this event? That's my take. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my take. You may be giving the movie too much credit or maybe not. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. That that makes sense. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, Well, Jason eventually finds McCullough. And in the same shot, we see McCullough flee into a building and then get thrown through a window on an upper floor. It's as if Jason teleported into the building. Uh, he kills McCullough by drowning him in a barrel of green sludge, which, as we saw in the opening montage, are common in 1980s New York. Sean and Rennie continue to flee Jason. They board a train where Jason follows them from car to car, car to car. And props to that lady on the train that gets pushed by Jason. I feel like she really committed. <laughs> and like falling over. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if she was an extra or an actual stunt performer, but she went hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet she was. It sore makes the next it day. makes for a great gift, by the way. It really. <laughs> I can see that. It Seeing her flying, <laughs> yeah, it does. This whole this whole subway scene has some of the more. And actually, from this point on, when Jason interacts with uh, just you know normal people from New York City, Manhattan, is some of the more memorable scenes I think in the film. For sure, and this is like the comedic part as well, like how New Yorkers are reacting to him. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Exactly. So, yeah, they pull the emergency brake and get off the train. And in the tunnel, Sean temporarily thwarts Jason by electrocuting him on the tracks. He has a complicated relationship with electricity, apparently. There's a brief respite where our heroes think they've defeated Jason, but then he shows up behind them again. And eventually they end up in the NYC sewer system trying to outrun him. 
We learned from a sanitation employee under there that the sewer floods with toxic waste every night at midnight, and that's 10 minutes from now. So the movie is setting a ticking clock here, which I appreciated, made for a little bit more tension in the third act. And in the chase with Jason under here, they gain the upper hand when Rennie throws a barrel of toxic waste in Jason's face, at which point he loses his mask and his skin starts to melt away. They're about to escape via a ladder to the surface, but Jason grabs onto Rennie's foot and will not let them leave. But then, as the toxic waste surge fills the tunnels, Jason seemingly has a flashback to his own drowning. The floodwaters come as Sean and Rennie cling desperately to the ladder, and when the water calms again, they look down and see Jason as a dead little boy with a floating Jason mask next to him. They emerge to the surface, and they're reunited with Rennie's dog, and they walk peacefully together through Times Square. And that's the film. I, I feel like not only did young Brian think New York City was very gritty and crime-ridden, but I just assumed the sewers were like a little mall underground that you could just walk freely through for miles and you <laughs> always could stand at a perfectly tall height and never have to crawl or be uncomfortable in any way. Did you guys see a lot of that in New York media? I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, Ninja Turtles. They're all up in there. Well, I thought I thought uh, sewers in New York City were filled with alligators. So, right? What do I know? That's too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me wonder how much of that is true. Like maybe they do just have really big sewers. I appreciated the scene, Jason. As you were talking about, there's some comedic moments here. He kicks somebody's jukebox like a bunch of punks, and then they threaten him. And I like that he just turns around and lifts up his mask. Just mm-hmm. to scare them off. I feel like he's never really done anything like that before where he's been self-aware that, yes, I'm hideous. You <laughs> <laughs> gaze upon me, you'll be freaked out. Yeah, Jason yeah. in this film doesn't really go after every, like in all the other previous films, like if you're alive and you're within his vicinity, you're subject to being murdered. Here, he's just got a very clear focus. He's going after these these people on this boat, Rennie specifically, I guess, and anybody that she's hanging out with and everybody else is just collateral damage. If he doesn't really care, like he's not out to kill, you know, a ton of New Yorkers. He's like, he like, I, I respect the New Yorkers, man. I'm not going to kill them. (laughs) They're my people. (laughs) There's also a scene where he goes into a restaurant or they flee into a restaurant and they're like, there's a psycho killer after us. And they're just like, welcome to New York or something like that. Uh, so yeah, they really paint New Yorkers as gritty and it's kind of, it becomes humorous and fun, especially in the third act. Um, I want to ask you guys overall what you think of this movie. So we'll start with Jason and maybe where does it sit compared to other films in the franchise for you too? So, yeah, I knew I was going to be asked this question. (laughs) You don't don't have to have a formal ranking if you don't have. No, it's fine. It's fine. So Jason Takes Manhattan is is not a favorite of mine. I mean, again, and I've already mentioned it, parts one through five, specifically ones through four, really are my favorites. And they'll always be the the Friday the 13th films that I consider the core movies. Six is great. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't have the same tone, so I appreciate it for what it is, but its its comedic tone threw me off back in the 80s. And it's still, it's, it's not, a, it's like a Friday 13th, like the second generation kind of film. Like there's the, the original series, one through four, maybe five, if you want to throw it in there. Dark, gritty, violent. Six is like, eh, it's kind of a jokey version of Jason, but it's a well-made movie. And then 
they start kind of just like grasping like oh, okay well now we'll do jason versus carrie for next one and now jason goes to manhattan and then it continues on for the rest of the, for the rest of the franchise really like what can we do different and jason takes manhattan is i think it's better than what some people think it is when i see rankings and people put this last i'm like really there's some, there's some films coming up that i think are way worse um but also i do not think it is up to par with the first four films in in the series or part six by any stretch so it's like in the middle for me mm-hmm. what do yeah, you feel are some of its biggest weaknesses and strengths weaknesses i guess well again the kills we've kind of already cited that the kills are really lackluster for the most part julius's beheading is the lone highlight i guess they could have done some interesting things on a boat i mean there's opportunities i know the mpaa had a say in that and really had influence in how violent and gory it could get but they could have done things in spite of that or because of that and been creative and been um you know had something unique knowing that the mpaa was going to step in and and take away some of the gore but they didn't really so the the kills are are a little bit lackluster and yeah if it would have been half and half like half the time on the boat and half the time in manhattan but it's more like two-thirds to one-third and so that is a bit of a, a letdown. And I, you know, obviously I understand why to this, you know, uh, all the stories about the budget and the budget that you cited really doesn't leave a lot of extra room to film in one of the most expensive cities in, in the world. So I get it. And uh, maybe if this would have been the fourth or fifth movie in the franchise where they had a bigger budget, they could have done it. But by 1989, this franchise was dropping down in terms of popularity. And so, the fact that they got any scenes in Manhattan is, I guess, um, you know, a, a positive. True, true. It's a, a fair way to look at it. I mean, it is 1989. Like you said, the slasher boom is often cited as, or like the golden era, 78 through 84. So by this time, people had grown tired of this. I think Halloween 5 and Nightmare on Elm Street 5 were both in theaters at the same time. So we're already deep into franchises here and, people have stopped caring a bit um ashram what do you think this movie the good yeah, the bad, I, the ugly uh, i i agree with everything jason said i mean like i i think a very weak start and pretty slow uneventful kills and like missing a lot of what i i've liked about this franchise and the few films that i've liked like the the fun kills or like the suspense uh or like jason just like you know being kind of uh you know, like more of a serial killer versus like Jason, as you mentioned, he's more targeted in this one, which I think makes him a little less scary because he is kind of like stalking and, and discriminating like who he's killing versus just killing everyone he sees. So, uh, yeah, that, that sucks. But I, I do think when it gets to New York, uh, the film like bumps up a few levels and gets a lot better. And you finally get like what you came to this film to see or were surprised to find uh, in, in, in mine and Brian's case. So I, I did feel like it, it definitely got better as the movie went on for that last half hour. But there were some weak plot points. Like, I, I don't think the whole uh, story was developed very well between uh, the main character and, like, her connection to Jason. Uh, I think they could have done more there. I also noticed every time Jason came on, did you guys notice the camera would always start at his shoes? And, like, that was, like, how you'd always, like, enter every scene is you'd see his shoes show up and then kind of, like... Uh, angle upwards and i thought just thought that kind of got old and you kind of felt like the kills were getting a little bit under creative 
at some point. So yeah, not overall not a great showing, but glad like they finally got to Manhattan and did some interesting things. Yeah, yeah. Once they got to Manhattan, the movie did get better. It's funny because the things that happen on the boat aren't necessarily uninteresting or bad, but they're just like gone through so matter of factly. Just to repeat what you guys said too, the kills are are very uninteresting. Nothing truly dynamic or action packed happens. He's just kind of checking the boxes. Um, I mean, he strangles somebody. He like uh, literally how he kills one of the characters. He, he strangles them to death. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I how, thought about how basic is that? <laughs> I thought about that when you said like they're on a boat. Yeah, he so he strangles somebody on a dance floor. Like that could have been in any Friday the Thirteenth movie. So I think that's a great great point. They really didn't take make enough use of the boat as a setting, and especially knowing that the director thought like, hey, we've got kind of an alien vibe. They didn't quite use that to its, its fullest potential. Um, I appreciated that they at least tried to flesh out the characters and relationships more. Like, I think this movie has more of that than some other Friday movies do. You know, we have Rennie and Sean's romance. We almost had the videographer and the rock and roll chick. And then we had the videographer pining for the the prom queen who used him just like rock and roll chick said that she would so i appreciated that they were going for these things we had these father and mother figures to rennie in the mix as well but at the same time some of it didn't go anywhere by the way rennie was gifted a pen that used to belong to stephen king from mrs van dusen like oh yeah and she was like oh, you're really gifted but that that's you know something where they kind of force things that the, there's no other implication for that in the movie never comes into play at all again i think she uses it once right to stab uh jason in the ice oh she does okay so th- thank you for correcting me i'm totally wrong yeah that's why you could have gone longer yeah right, right. i guess it. i i was looking for that to be woven into her character a little bit more like oh okay yeah. she's like creative and maybe a good writer um but yeah kills are mediocre even the deleted stuff i think there was a bit more there was a scene where the prom queen was discovered and she had like multiple shards of glass in her. Again, like Jason said, it wasn't so gory that it should have been cut. It's kind of a shame that it wasn't there, but it also didn't add that much to the movie. Um, and there were some things that just kind of felt weird or forced. The There were plenty of other high schoolers on the boat, but they just left him and said, Hey, everyone's in the restaurant. And then they were like, well, there is no more restaurant and just moved yeah. on. It was kind of like, oh, okay. I was wondering what happened there. <laughs> yeah. They just Did... used that line to get rid of like half the cast, which I understand. Oh. <laughs> um, so what about the ending, though? I mean, what do you guys think about the ending? Yeah. What did that mean? <laughs> yeah. Right. And why has he spent so much time in water? He like swam <laughs> all the way to shore and well, like, i think he then teleported the... right oh yeah that's maybe he did but we see him get out of the water why now in this water does he have a vision of drowning at the end yeah so it's just yeah. for me the ending is a little i don't know it just seems weak to me uh, yeah so what they're i think what they're trying to do is again like with most movies and later on in the franchise you have to be prepared this could be the last one mm. this could be the last movie so most directors are like, well, how do I, if, if this ends up being the final Friday the 13th, how can I put a nice bow on it? And so I think the director here was trying to do that by 
reverting Jason back to his childhood form, basically releasing the demons from him, releasing the evil and the anger and the hate and the drive to kill and turning him back into this innocent boy that drowned back in the 1950s, which is cool, I guess, but I just don't think it was executed very well. And I, and I honestly, I think the facts look, (laughs) don't look that good. That's one of my biggest complaints about this um, ending is I think the effects of the, the Jason mask of him decaying, melting, whatever you want to call it. I don't, I personally don't think they look very good. It looked, my opinion. It looked a little bit silly. Um, I was surprised how much they showed of that. Actually, uh, I didn't. Ex- I wasn't expecting that. It's like a good amount of time with him not wearing his mask, right? Towards the end. Yeah, that was fun to see. I wouldn't call it a good amount of time, but yeah, once she throws that toxic waste on him. Another point in time where I thought the effects weren't good is when she has the flashback of him as a boy pulling her under. He just very clearly his whole body is the skin of this child actor, and then. His face is just so clearly a mask. You can see the line where the skin tone changes. Mm, yeah. It might have been, you know, you're underwater, you've got a child actor, but could have been done a little bit better. That it looked pretty bad. Agreed. I like that interpretation of the ending, though. That, like, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a nice way to kind of close it out. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Reduced to his I think innocence. That's what they were. Yeah, I think that's what they were trying to do is making sure that if this was the last one, that it kind of went out with an, you know, in a way that felt satisfying for, for fans of the franchise. Like, the, yeah. the again, the evil has been lifted from, the curse or whatever you want to call it from, his his death decades ago. Yeah, there's some finality to it. Yeah, I've always wondered, like, so he died, he drowned as a young boy, and, like, the last few films, he's been, like, this huge hulking uh, guy with the hockey mask going around killing people. So this theory, if if this is him and all of that was the like, evil, uh, so, so, so that means he, like, kind of, he never, like, grew underwater. It was just, like, some evil amassing on him that made him who he was in all these films, and this is, like, it all getting washed away, and he's just that young boy left under it. Sure. Okay. Cool. <laughs> just that layers awesome. and layers of evil. Yeah, just piling muscular, up over the <laughs> clearly <laughs> working out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because yeah, I always wondered how he got so big and buff underwater. Yeah, uh, that that kind of makes sense. That's the hate. Yep. Um. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Zero to five brief visits to Manhattan. What do you give this movie, Jason? Like I said, it's pretty middle of the road for me. So if you're saying zero to five, I'm going to give it a two and a half. All right. All right, Ashwin, what about you? Uh, you know, I, I think the first half I had like at a one. And then when I you know, I appreciate the New York stuff, I'd give that like a two. So I'm, I'm letting it like a one and a half out of five. One and a half. All right. Well, I'm, I'm siding with Jason on this one. I give it a two and a half. Like, I feel like a three for me is did I like watching it? And I felt like I had a hard time saying no i didn't like watching it but i felt like i had a hard time saying yes i did like watching it <laughs> Two, 2.5 is right where where i'm at it doesn't have many egregious missteps now it has missteps i wouldn't call many of them egregious but it is just lack lacklusterness is its biggest flaw essentially yeah you guys didn't like feel bored like for the first two-thirds of this film jason did you 
Maybe a little bit. A little bit? I mean, not enough yeah. to, like, so that's why it's not a five or a four, because I was a little bored mm-hmm. early on. That's right. why it's a two and a half. Yeah. Sure, sure. Right. I was bored, but things were happening, just not necessarily super interesting things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. Uh, yeah. Hey, last theory. Is there a chance you're trying to tell the story about immigrants coming to the U.S., uh, you know, coming to, like, Ellis Island, seeing the Statue of Liberty, and Jason's, like, this metaphor for uh like illnesses and stuff that took place on those boats coming from europe back in the whatever years immigrants came over whoa i think some of those illnesses were known to just pop people's heads clean off i think so that was one of the big ones i think yeah <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stories about that one that i mean that's like, rich yeah. i have a hard time pulling pulling that thread through anything else that happens in the movie <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a storyline there and like you know the way they see the statue of uh, liberty and it's like a a beacon of, of like safety to them then they emerge and they think they're safe but maybe their past has come to haunt them and as they enter this new uh, city and new country i think there's some film students listening to this episode right now that needs to jump on that uh, thesis right right so. that yeah. thesis. they do face immediate and very cruel hardship the moment they get to new york exactly, exactly. everything goes wrong yeah that's 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 the story man all right. Good analysis, Ashwin. Hey, thanks. That's what I'm here for. All right, cool. Well, it wouldn't be an episode without a curveball from you. I think it might be about time to close up shop. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to have you. Awesome to have a Friday the 13th super fan on the show with us. Um, you want to tell the listeners where they can find you on social media and your podcast and your website, where, anything you want to tell them, their plug? Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Ashvin, for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. I, I loved it. So, again, uh, the Press Rewind Prince Lyrics podcast is my show. You can find the show easiest. Just go to PressRewind.net. Otherwise, you can just search for it on your podcast catcher, podcast listener of choice, social media. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just the normal places. Go Google search me. You'll find me. So, thank you again. Much appreciated. And I believe you're Old Man JB on Twitter as well. Old Man JB on Twitter. If you're on Twitter also, that's, that's my kind of my um, my video game and horror movie Twitter. I have two accounts because, you know, I have to keep them separated, like the offspring would say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so find me either way. It just depends on what you dig. If you listen to music, then look for me on the podcast Twitter if you want to Follow me for horror movie and um, video game related, then it's Old Man JB. Yeah, and if you've got even a passing interest in, in Prince, you've got to check out Press Rewind. It's so interesting, the analysis you do with your guests or by yourself, really interesting stuff. And I'm not even a Prince fan, so that's partly one thing that makes me feel like, all right, got to delve deeper into the world of Prince. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Cool. All right. Well, that is it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, just go to horrormovieclub.com. You can find social links drops down there, drop downs for Twitter, Facebook. That's where we say what we're covering next week. Uh, the link to our Discord group is there too. You come on, chat with great people like Jason, who are always talking about horror movies and other fun stuff every day. Um, if you want some swag, just Google Horror Movie Club Coaster Set. That'll take you to the Etsy page of Amy Mae Popart, who designed our logo. We've got a Patreon account. So on horrormovieclub.com, if you just click that big orange Patreon button, you subscribe for a dollar a month and get some bonus content from us. I think 
that's about it. So thanks again to Jason. And until next time, if you're a deckhand and you see a blood-soaked ship come into port before your cruise takes off, you might want to alert an adult with clear and concise language rather than just saying an ominous warning to a high schooler before the cruise <laughs> takes off. Be responsible. Yeah. <laughs> you can be a responsible harbinger. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the cut of ethics thing. <laughs> <laughs>